Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for this time to sit down and study your word. Lord, uh, give us ears to hear and open our hearts and our minds to understand uh, the word and help us to uh, be doers of the word, not hearers only. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to be a light to others and, and help us to grow in grace and the knowledge of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I'll start off by just reading the chapter again. We have a very small portion of the confession to cover, but it's a really big portion uh, of contemporary attention. I think it's worthy of our, of our looking at it uh, closely and looking at the scriptures uh, from whence it comes. So chapter 4, still in paragraph 1, and we'll get to paragraph 2 next week. It pleased God the Father... Son and Holy Ghost, for the manifestation of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. This is the same triune God that we spoke about uh, in chapter 2, revealed in the same uh, scriptures that we spoke about in chapter 1, the same God that makes his eternal decrees in chapter 3. And Becky, do you remember how God executes his decrees? God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. In the works of creation and providence, right? So that's, I think that's number 9, uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. So talked about his eternal decree of God decreeing the, the end from the beginning and everything in between and the means thereof. And in the very next two chapters, we have creation, fairly short chapter, providence, pretty long chapter, how God gets done what it is that he has purposed to do. So obviously, there's, there's nothing to do until, uh, in terms of displaying and him, him decreeing for his creation until he's created it. So that's where we start. <clears throat> in the New Testament, there's a verse that's very uh, relevant to this. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, speaking of Jesus, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Obviously pointing to the divinity of Christ, but also says uh, something about creation itself. Well, just looking at the confession, and we're going to move sort of out from the confession, our denomination, and then into the scripture from whence we're getting all this stuff, and talk specifically about that. So, the way the confession is worded is, is borrowed from John Calvin, who in his commentary on Genesis wrote that God did the work of creation in the space of six days. Uh, he made all these things, visible or invisible, all of them, in the space of six days, and all very good. Now, the context of the Westminster Assembly and the Westminster Confession of Faith was not the context of today. So, would anybody have an idea of other views that might have not been the same as this one? That were, that were within Christianity at that time. This being in the, the early to mid-1600s. Well, it's, I think some people say that 
part of evolution, they say God started the bang. Uh-huh. Did anybody out. think that in the 1600s? I don't know. No. <laughs> Copernicus was a little bit earlier. Not a ton. 100 years maybe? Yeah. Uh, but Copernicus wasn't, wasn't giving origins of the, of the world. Copernicus was, Copernicus was saying that the, that the earth revolved around the sun, which was still obviously a controversial thing to say. So there were ideas outside of Christianity that, that said other things about the origins of the universe, probably one of the more prevalent ones in Greek uh, ideas and Greek philosophy, also in Eastern religions and philosophy, was that there is no beginning. There's just an eternal circle. Now, the scripture, and a good interpretation of scripture, would have time being linear, and that God has a purpose in it. We've talked about that last week, that God had this, this purpose of displaying his glory and his power uh, and ultimately his grace in creation, though in the act of creation itself, only goodness, there's no sin yet, there's no need for grace. But that's coming down the road. So this is actually being written in opposition. When they say that, it, it, it's, it's a statement of just sort of a fact, but it's, if it's in opposition to anything, it's in opposition to the idea that God created instantaneously. Because that was really the only competing view, uh, maybe some alterations of that, that God just created everything instantaneously and he uses the format of Genesis 1 and the day, uh, the six day plus the seven, the six days of work plus the day of rest as a literary analogy to teach the people something about God, about the nature of creation. Uh, but in actuality, God just, God just said it and it was done. There was no, there was no further process. This is just, this is just speaking, uh, in more of a theological sense. Now, nearly all the Westminster divines held a, a what we call a six by twenty-four view. That was the only view that was out there, aside from instantaneous. I think there were one or two instantaneous that we know of that were in there, and they didn't convince anybody. And so, this is what was put in there. However, there were some views that were a little more precise. Then even 6 by 24, uh, one, uh, John Lightfoot, I believe it was. Yes, that's what his name was. He had it all mapped out by the hour, pretty much. He said that on the sixth day, Adam was created at 9 a.m. He fell, or he, uh, Eve was created about noon. And then, of course, by sunset, they had fallen and all that had happened. I mean, that, that's, that was his view. And so the, the Westminster Assembly, these guys evaluated statements like that. And they didn't go any further. They said, we're just going to stick with what Scripture says. We're going to be silent where Scripture's silent. We're going to speak where Scripture speaks. And so they said, in the space of six days, and all very good. They used the term space, just ripping that right out of John Calvin. They didn't change it at all. They said, hey, he, he said something good. We're not going to reinvent the wheel. They didn't say time and things of that nature. Because one of the things that's pointed out uh, from early in Christian history, guys like Origen in the second century pointed out that there's no sun and moon and stars for seasons and times and all that stuff that comes on uh, day four. So it wasn't a solar day, though you could argue it was a 24-hour day. It wasn't that because the sun was there. 
So there's all kinds of things that you could speculate about, and the divines just didn't put that into the confession. They left room uh, for people's interpretations. Now, in terms of pre-modern views, most people did take it literally, though there are some significant exceptions to that. Origen, as I said, in the 2nd, 3rd century. Augustine, St. Augustine, St. Augustine, Augustine, however you want to say it. Uh, I've been told that St. Augustine is a city in Florida, and Augustine is a guy that lived back in the uh, early church. What's that? Monica's Monica's son. We, all, we can all say Monica, and nobody disagrees about that. Uh, Augustine thought it was, it was an instantaneous creation, but described in a more poetic literary sense in Genesis 1 and 2. And then Anselm, uh, later on, a great thinker uh, of the 12th century, was also, also held what you would call more of an allegorical view or an analogical view. And even especially in the early church... You'll notice among the fathers, they allegorize a lot. And, and they, when, when there's a poetic element and when there's any kind of what they sort of see as part of the inspiration of God in the text, they think there's going to be more underneath it that is below the surface. And they went awry in that a lot of times and they went too far afield. But sometimes we've become almost materialistic about our interpretation of Scripture. We don't believe there's any sort of... Uh, extra speciality about it. Now, at this particular time when the confession was being written, uh, there was a lot of reaction against the speculative theology that was pervasive in the Catholic Church, and you don't see that. We would see, they would certainly be more like us uh, in, in their thinking as far as that goes. Now, that's the confession. That's, that's the context they were in. Our denomination, the PCA itself, has dealt with the issues of theistic evolution, of old earth versus young earth creationism, and so forth. And there was a, a study, a, a committee that produced a report that came out to the General Assembly in, in 2000, so 20 years ago now. And the Assembly voted to, I, I believe it was basically just to take the, the suggestion of the committee and accept four views as... Uh, more or less historical and acceptable as acceptable interpretations of the creation narrative in Genesis. And those would be the calendar, the 6 by 24, uh, literal, literalistic understanding, the day-age view, the framework view, and the analogical view. I'm not going to tell you what those are now, and I'm not going to tell you which one I'm saying as I go through. Uh, and it might be more than one. So... <laughs> Uh, you can guess, and you can go study it later if you want to. What was rejected in this study and by the assembly was any sort of theistic, or really any sort of evolution of man, theistic or otherwise, so that Adam had to be one single historical person, not simply an idea, not an ape that God gave uh, some sort of What's it? Self-awareness, that God made self-aware, that God remade in his own image, but that rather Adam had to be a special creation that fell, otherwise it would do too much damage to the theological uh, structure, particularly of redemption in the New Testament. If we all fall in Adam's sin, it's not just an analogy. Now, in practice, there are quite a few churches within the PCA today that would probably, and probably hold Presbyteries to some extent, that would accept uh, theistic evolution 
and would ordain guys that, that think that and uh, teach it in their churches. And there's an organization called BioLogos that pushes that. At any rate, that's all that kind of set the stage. Now I just want to move into what, what should we think about creation? What do we need to know? I'm no longer kind of t- what, what does the confession say? We're just going to say what, what we should understand of creation from what's revealed in the Bible. So all things, God created them. Marduk did not create part of the universe. Uh, ISIS was not responsible for some of it. Not ISIS, the terrorist group, but ISIS, the Egyptian. Ra, the Egyptian sun god, didn't control a part of it. Yahweh, the eternal God, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, created and controls all of it by the word of his power. Not just the things we see, not just this this pew right here, not just this stand, but the things that we don't see. Now, what does that mean? I want to read quickly so that we don't get too far afield. An admonition from John Calvin, and it's not in your handout, so you'll just have to listen to me and trust me. I copied and pasted it. I didn't leave it to my own fingers. Angels being the ministers, and say what this is about. This is talking about John Calvin saying what we should, what we should, uh, what should be the limits of where we should speculate about about these things. And particularly, he talks about angels because people tend to get obsessed about these about angels and so forth. Angels being the ministers appointed to execute the commands of God must, of course, be admitted to be His creatures. But to stir up questions concerning the time or order in which they were created bespeaks more perverseness than industry. Moses relates that the heavens and earth were finished with all their host. What avails it anxiously to inquire at what time more hidden celestial hosts than stars and planets also began to be? Not to dwell on this, let us here remember that on the whole subject of religion, one rule of modesty and soberness is to be observed. And it is this, in obscure matters, to speak, not to speak or think, even long to know more than the, what the word of God has delivered. A second rule is that in reading the scriptures, we should cons- constantly direct our inquiries and meditations to those things which tend to edification, not to indulge curiosity or in study of things of no use. And since the Lord has been pleased to instruct us not in frivolous questions, but in solid piety, in the fear of his name, in true faith, and in the duties of holiness, let us rest satisfied with such knowledge. Having said that, you can, you, you can kick me a little bit if you think I'm speculating here, but I think there's some certain things that we can see. When in Genesis 1 and 2, it tells us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. There are two Hebrew words there that get a lot of attention, tohu and bohu. I think I'm saying those right. I hope so. Without form, tohu, void, empty, bohu. What in the world does that mean? Well, the, the heavens and the earth are created. But could you see anything if you were there? I would argue that if you were there... You'd evaporate because, <laughs> because you'd be without form and void. There was nothing governing them. 
There was chaos. Now, it's not the sort of chaos, however, that the ancients and even modern people might think of as chaos. It's, it's all completely within the sovereignty of God. It's, it's his chaos. But what's happening here is God's doing what has been called by theologians uh, creatio prima, the first creation. All the matter, all the material universe is there in whatever basic substance it is. I would say atoms, but atoms have a form. Atoms have order. I would say some other subatomic particle that I don't understand, but those subatomic particles do exactly what God tells them to do within the order that God has established. So what we see in verse 1 is what has been called chaos, though it's not exactly the chaos that you and I imagine. And it is compared throughout Scripture and throughout ancient literature and thought with water. Water does not conform, water rather does conform to the size and shape of its container because it has no fixed form of how we normally think of form. Now it does have logic that governs it, but particularly in ancient thought and in the scripture, water, the sea, is thought to be a very dangerous place because it is. Things wash up on the seashore occasionally and they're scary they're big and freaky and your grandpa tells you about them and the story gets passed on giant squid 30 feet long great white sharks who knows what out there in the ocean it's a scary place and so we see throughout scripture that the the ocean is this this place of great danger of unpredictability and yet God saves people through that chaos, right? The people, the children of Israel are taken through the water. God parts the sea. And they're not drowned by it, but that chaos is what drowns the enemies, the Egyptians. But in verse 2, or verse, verse 3 rather, we see the first bringing together of something. Of some order. Can you imagine a mixture of darkness and light? Put a little bit of darkness and a little bit of light together. What is that? It doesn't make sense. It's illogical because there's no logic working within creation yet. And so the first thing that God does, that God says, is let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Well, this is interesting. God is establishing by divine fiat, by his decree, the underpinnings of the universe, and we're seeing it come together. There's no gravity. There's no... Well, what is that force called that holds atoms together? Strong magnetism and weak magnetism and all these things, the nuclear binding force? None of that. But God is speaking those things into existence so that the world he calls into existence has this great fixed order to it. And it's not only things like that. He's about to start doing things like fixed categories. Fixed categories that 
that exist regardless of what matter we see in front of us. Things like quality, quantity, time, length, height, depth, warm, cold. God has to create these very categories and concepts. How cool is that? Can't even see anything yet, but God, yet God is having to create these things. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be fair to say that God created darkness too? Because in a sense that to us, you think about God sees everything, and to us we see darkness in our natural lives, but to God there is no darkness. He can yeah. see the lowest of the oceans, the, the deepest of caves. It's not subject to darkness. Yeah, he, our, he our sight is... What's he just name? created the categories. Yeah. Like yeah. Are, the category of darkness. So, and maybe the concept of darkness. I'm not exactly sure, right? We're, we're stumbling in the dark to, to even speak of these things, aren't we? Uh, so, we, we, I don't want to belabor that one anymore, but it's just, it's just really cool, isn't it? It is, yeah. Uh, to, to, and I don't, I, my opinion, I don't think that there was light at that point in the sense of it materially existing. I think probably just made light a thing like this is an underpinning sort of thing not being dogmatic about any of this because like i say we're all kind of stumbling in the dark but i think it's good to probe the depths of it so that we can sit in awe of god and realize how low and creaturely we are and worship him all the more for it so the categories i just spoke of uh you know light dark hot cold what did I say? Length, width, depth, height, time, quality, quantity, all those things. Those are some sort of fixed categories. But, but then there's, beyond that, there's categories like zebra. Okay? What makes a zebra a zebra? As God said it's a zebra. What, what is a human being? How do you categorize it? Why, why is my dog not a human being? Why is a monkey not a human being? Because we all know that a human being, as one person said, is an animal that stands on two legs and does not have feathers. So, so how do we define these things? Well, God has defined them. And we know these categories innately. God's programmed them into us so that we can speak uh, about, about things intelligently. Quoting Gordon Clark, unless we can use concepts and talk of groups of things, that is categories, philosophy would be impossible. This is a huge thing. If you go to the university over here and talk to some professors, they will deny that there are such things as fixed categories. They will deny that people are born understand or with pre-programmed categories by which they understand because they think their philosophy demands, this, it's uh, empiricism, that they learn everything through their senses. And without getting any further into it, we say, we say no. There are real categories. There are such things as, dare I be more controversial, man and woman, created and fixed by God. If all, This is Clark again. If only individual things existed... And every noun were a proper name, conversation, and even thinking itself could not be carried on. I shouldn't belabor this point anymore. It's probably scattered anyway. Moving on. The study of creation itself. Well, go ahead. A verse popped into my mind when you were talking about the 
when Frank was asking about the darkness, somewhere in some version of the Bible, it says darkness and light are both alike to you, referring to God. Yes. I can't find yeah. that exactly, but Psalm 139 says, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. And I'm thinking that maybe another version, that might be the verse where it says darkness and light are both alike to you. But I don't know. I couldn't find that. Yeah. That's Psalm it. 139, verse 12. So, anyway. That's the light that I shed on the discussion of darkness. It's, it's a good light that you've shed on it, Betsy. You'd be looking it up. <laughs> no, you can play it at the end. So, this unseen order, before there's any matter, before if you had eyeballs, they could see anything, or you could feel or touch or taste anything, God is creating the underpinnings of the universe. Calculus came into existence before there was anything to calculate. Now, the study of creation itself, from a philosophical viewpoint, Christians have long argued that we have sort of the moral high ground on reasons to do science, on reasons to study the natural world, because we believe that 2 plus 2 is going to be 4 every time, because God created an orderly universe. Now, we might not completely understand the order because it's too complex and we have to progressively get more and more understanding as we move along, but we know that if we continue to seek things out, we can know things and God's not uh, fooling us and we're not fooling ourselves. But beyond that, well, let me back up. This being in distinction from pantheism where God is everything and thus the things themselves are somewhat impenetrable because they are God. And you can't know the essence of God in that sense. But beyond that, why, why study creation? William Perkins, who was a Puritan uh, who preceded the, preceded the Westminster guys by, by a few decades, was very influential on them. He, he said... Uh, he said this, Whereas God the Father is creator of all things and hath given unto man reason, understanding, and ability more than to other creatures, we ought to consider and meditate on the work of God's creation. This the wise man teacheth us, Ecclesiastes 7.13, saying, Consider the works of God. And indeed it is a special duty of every man who professeth himself to be a member of God's church, as he acknowledgeth God to be the creator, so to look upon his workmanship and view and consider all creatures. A skillful workman can have no greater disgrace. Listen to this. A skillful workman can have no greater disgrace than when he hath done some famous thing to have his friend pass by his work and not so much as look upon it. It may have happened once or twice that I have come home 
after work or after being somewhere, and the house is in perfect order. It is in admirable order, and yet I have not admired it and declared it to be admirably so. It may have also been that other people have come home after I've been at the house, and the house was in some good order, which ought to be admired, (laughs) and no one admired it, or at least they didn't say so. Well, what does it say if we only look at our own works and not of nature and we don't appreciate it? The modern world appreciates nature far, far, far less than the people of past centuries. It does not take long of reading through you know, the early church fathers, the Puritans, uh, any of the Catholic writers in between, uh, up to people like Jonathan Edwards and, and so on and so forth. They are immersed in nature, and they speak of the flowers and the trees and the birds, and, and, and they don't just say flowers and trees and birds. No, no, no. They go into specific species. They go into specific times of year. They're familiar with all these things that are going on, and they worship God through them, and they teach us about God through them. We think nothing, this is back to, back to William Perkins, we think nothing too much or too good to bestow on the vain shows and plays, idle sports and pastimes, which are the vanities of men, and we do most willingly behold them. In the mean season, utterly neglecting and condemning the glorious work of God's creation. Well, the Lord hath appointed his Sabbath to be sanctified, not only in the public ministry of his word and by private prayers, but also in a special consideration and meditation of God's creatures. And therefore is the duty of every man in this, distinctly and seriously, to view and consider the creatures of God, and thereby take occasion to glorify his name by ascribing unto him wisdom, glory, power, and omnipotence that is due unto him and appears in the same. Notice a lot of those descriptors also being used in uh, paragraph one that we're studying. Well, I might come back to that Hiraz quote later, but you should look at it uh, nonetheless. I'm really not sure why I put it there where I did in the handout. It's, it's in the wrong spot. If it even is in the handout, I might have taken it out. At any rate, I want to move on to the days of creation. And before we do that, I'm going to say something, well, a few things that may be somewhat controversial, at least on first glance. And you might want to stone me, but I, 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 I prithee, hear me out till the end and stone me later. So interpretive concerns. Firstly, general revelation can inform our understanding of special revelation. What is special revelation? Anybody? The scripture. God speaking by some means directly to us to reveal something. What is something that we cannot know apart from special revelation? Christ? We cannot know the doctrine of creation apart from special We can't know the doctrine of creation itself apart from special creation to some great extent, right? We can't know the gospel. That's probably the biggest one right there. We cannot know grace. Because the scripture says that the heavens declare the glory of God. 
Paul says in Romans 2 that people have the law of God written on their, their hearts, their conscience, it's in their minds. We can know the law, we can know what's right and wrong without God even telling us. But specifically, we, we will never know grace, and we will never know exactly how to worship God as fallen creatures apart from Him telling us how to do so. Well, what's general revelation? General revelation is what you're going to run into in your life without talking to God, namely nature, nature's laws. Now, does general revelation supersede special revelation? No. No. But can general revelation inform how we interpret special revelation? I hope so. Because this morning, I navigated using satellites that were put in orbit. I am not a geocentrist. And yet, the scripture in the Old Testament, and in the New, I guess, to some extent, does speak in what we would call phenomenological terms sunrises sunsets the sun running its course like a strong man many other things that I won't get into that are strictly speaking scientifically incorrect and yet said something to the people who understood the earth merely from that lower understanding John Calvin said that that God lisps to our understanding just like just like a mommy, I think he said a wet nurse for some reason, which is kind of strange in today's culture, but <laughs> we'll just say a mommy. A mommy says, says, you know, Johnny, take your binky to the, to the sinky or whatever. I, I, I don't know what, what you say to the kid, but you, you, you break it down to their level and you lisp to their understanding. You speak in their terms, even though in some cases it might not be strictly accurate on your level of understanding. It's all they know. And so... God has yet to give us a science book uh, that, that would allow us to speak perfectly accurately all the time. If God would have given us a science book that talked about atoms being really small, it would have taken a lot of time and space, and we'd be learning about it instead of salvation, and that'd be bad, maybe. He, where does it go beyond our understanding? He, he doesn't teach us to that. Instead, he teaches us through what we know to know him. Now, modern man... Okay. Yeah? Are you going to use that verse in, in Romans? Uh, in Romans chapter 1, it says, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Yes. So... I didn't say that one. I think I mentally lumped that one in with chapter 2 of Romans, but right, that's in, that's in, that's in first. And, and that, bringing to the, that bringing the whole purpose of that, you know, that, that we can see his divine attributes because of what has been made, that we can observe, make us guilty of failing to worship him. Right? I just didn't know if you had brought that. I didn't, but that's, that's another good one. Um, these are things that we can, that we can know through nature, that you like what you said. And yet we need special revelation to bring us to salvation because you're not going to find grace through nature. You're only going to find law. Therefore, from what I said 
uh, in, the, in the first one there. Modern man can know and does know more of creation. Should it teach us to not worship God or should it teach us to worship God more and more deeply and to stand in awe of God? Obviously, I want to argue for the second one. Um, so as we look at the days of creation quickly, my question will be, What does the creation account tell us that is relevant for people in 1300 B.C. when it was first written down that we know of? It's also relevant to people in 30 A.D. It's also relevant to people today with differing understandings of the natural world. So those are the interpretive concerns. Think about those as we, as we move along. Next week, we'll get to the days of creation.